Good afternoon. I would like to uh, introduce our keynote speaker, uh, Dr. Richard S.J. Toll. Uh, he's a member of the European Academy and professor of economics at the University of Sussex, professor of the economics of climate change at the Free University of Amsterdam. I went to the expensive University of Chicago. Uh, and a research fellow at the Tinbergen Institute. Uh, he is ranked among the top 150 economists in the world. I think in terms of environmental economics, he's just simply tops. Um, and uh, one of the 50 most cited climate scholars on the planet. He's editor of Energy Economics and has played an active role in international bodies such as the Stanford Energy Modeling Forum. Notice has played, uh, can be past tense, because he lists the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in which he walked off uh, because of their, he thought that they were exaggerating things a little bit. Um, the Global Trade Analysis Project and the European Forum on Integrated Environmental Assessment. He's an all-around great guy. And my understanding of Richard is he will not say what his audience wants to hear, which means that we're gonna have a good time. So Richard, the stage is yours. It's an honor and pleasure to be here just to take a um, minor misconception away. Um, <clears throat> I did not walk away from the IPCC. I walked away from uh, the summary for policymakers. I'm still uh, convening lead author uh, for working group two. Um, <clears throat> I'm the guy who's standing between uh, you and an interesting conversation at lunch, uh, so I'm going to try and keep this. I'm going to try and keep. Uh, this is much better. Uh, should I just start all over again? <laughs> okay. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. Uh, to take a slight misconception away, I did not walk away from the IPCC. I walked away from its summary for policymakers only. I'm still a convening lead author. Um, I'm the guy who is standing between you and an interesting conversation at lunch. I'm going to try and keep this brief. Uh, when I was discussing um, with Pat what we're going to talk about, what, I, what he wanted me to talk about, I'm going to focus on climate policy. I'm not going to, despite the discussion we just had, focus on the social cost of carbon. Um, because I, I want to keep it short, some of the things that I'm going to say sound a bit like sloganeering rather than more considerate uh, opinions about things. If you want to press me on a particular point, I'd be happy to uh, take questions immediately after uh, or later. Um, <clears throat> so where are we going um, with climate policy is essentially uh, what I'm going to try and talk about in hopefully less than half an hour. Um, and I'm gonna ju just going to start with where are we with climate policy uh, today? And, and cl international climate policy foundations were laid in the mid-1980s, uh, uh, sort of culminated in the Rio conference in 1992. Uh, so I think we can say that for the last 20, 25 years, uh, governments have tried, and uh, some of them have tried hard, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And you can rightfully ask the question, how <coughs> successful was this? Now, to this audience, it shouldn't be a surprise uh, <clears throat> that if you just look at the emissions record, you can't really see anything. Emissions have just 
continue to go up uh, as if there was no climate policy. This is, of course, uh, not a particularly fair comparison because a lot of these uh, emissions come from countries that do not have an, uh, uh, at least a nominal climate policy. Uh, but if we focus <coughs> on some of the countries uh, that do have a climate policy, uh, France, um, here in grey, Germany in orange, Japan in green, the United Kingdom in pink, um, as well as the United States in, in uh, light blue. What you're looking at here is CO2 emissions per dollar value added. This is perhaps the most interesting uh, metric that tells you has something fundamentally changed in the economy. Um, for those of you who can't quite read the graph, it starts in 1970, runs to 2014. Um, and you see that CO2 intensity of the economy has come down and has come down consistently uh, and persistently over this, this period. But you can't really see a trend break in 1990. It just seems that the last 20 years were a continuation of the trends of the 20 years before. And this is true for the United States, where there's been some climate policy, but it's also true uh, for some of the countries, Germany, uh, Japan, United Kingdom, who have consistently claimed to be leaders uh, in climate policy and claim to have done a whole lot uh, to reduce their emissions. It's just not visible uh, in the data. Um, there's been more careful analyses of this than just eyeballing graphs, but the results are essentially the same. It does not seem to be the case that the last 20 years of climate policy have had a really big effect on our emissions. Um, has been a lot of climate policy. And definitely in Europe, climate policy seems to have been mostly about two things. One, about creating rents. And the second was about uh, rewarding allies. A lot of money has changed hands, but the effect of this money changing hands has, does not seem to have been uh, emission reduction. Uh, <clears throat> And there's another thing uh, that I'd like you to draw your attention to. The way, definitely, in Europe we have done climate policy does not seem to be, even though there's still a strong public consensus that there should be climate policy, it doesn't seem to be particularly entranced uh, in policy in the way that universal primary education is entranced or uh, all the expansions are entranced in the sense that nobody is really objecting uh, to this anymore. We quibble over details, but we don't uh, question the fundamentals. That is not the case for climate policy. There's still a lot of uh, debate about the fundamentals, uh, whether we should be doing this at all. Uh, and, and the policy instruments that have been chosen are not the ones that would last for the decades or longer that we need to really uh, decarbonize the economy. <clears throat> what we've seen in Portugal, Spain, the UK, uh, is that the emphasis on subsidizing particular forms of energy do not really withstand uh, the current austerity uh, that these countries have to uh, adopt uh, to balance the, 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 their fiscal position. Um, and also the experience in Australia uh, and the UK uh, suggest that the sort of rent creation that has been going on is just not stable, uh, not robust to uh, elections. Uh, and if a new party comes in power, uh, things change, things uh, change rapidly. In the UK, 
since the last election, there's sort of one renewable subsidy uh, abandoned every week. Uh, seems to be the rate. Um, not, a, not a big bang as you saw in Australia that all climate policies is nonsense and let's abolish it all in one go, but just one by one these policies are being dismantled. Um, in Europe the, uh, or in, in the UK this is much driven uh, by a concern uh, about wind turbines. Particularly the English public is very keen on its countryside and is beginning to develop a very strong distaste uh, against wind turbines that spoil the landscape. Um, <clears throat> in Germany, there is a lot of opposition against the cost of it all. Um, and what you're looking at uh, in this graph from 1998 to 2013 uh, is not the price uh, of energy, but rather the tax on energy, uh, which, and this is the total, uh, which went from um, 2.3 billion euro per year to 31.6 billion dollar per year. That's a 15-fold increase in the space of 15 years. And the German public is beginning to get fed up uh, with this. Um, doesn't seem to have done a whole lot with regard to emissions. Um, <clears throat> German emissions have not come down. Uh, <coughs> as much as some people expected, and in recent years they've gone up again. And the reason for that is Fukushima. Um, when the tsunami hit nuclear power plant in Japan, the Germans thought we are vulnerable to tsunamis as well, <laughs> and we should close our nuclear power plants just to make sure that this doesn't happen. Um, you still need base loads. So coal, and not just coal, but also a lot of lignite, has actually taken over uh, the generation of baseload power in, 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 in Germany, and that is why emissions uh, have now gone up, despite the costs of energy also rising very, very rapidly, despite enormous amounts of green subsidies, uh, as well as taxation of fossil fuels. Um, so where is this all heading? Um, for those of you who are not quite familiar with Europe, uh, there is a thing that I call the Grand Bargain. Um, and as part of the Grand Bargain, the northwest of the European Union, uh, that is the Netherlands, Germany, the UK, uh, Scandinavian countries, essentially they have imposed their environmental agenda on the whole of the EU. Now you may wonder, why would other countries in the EU accept this? No, very simple, the southern countries, the Mediterranean countries, have been admitted into the uh, Euro. Uh, and the Eastern European countries, who are not very keen on environmental policy or climate policy or anything like that, have got a lot of uh, structural funds uh, in return. It's essentially a form of internal development aid uh, within the European Union. Um, but that grand bargain is unraveling at the moment. Uh, you are familiar uh, with the Euro crisis, no doubt. Um, that takes away one vital plank of the grand bargain. Uh, and at the moment, there is a lot of debate about refugees and what to do with them, uh, refugees from the Middle East in particular. Um, and that is straining the old deal because now we are asking the Eastern European countries to take in a lot of Syrian refugees and they will want something in return. And one of the things they will want in return is less strict environmental policy. Um, we've also seen that attempts to what people call fixing uh, the European Union's 
Uh, emissions trading scheme, scheme have essentially failed. I don't really understand why it needed to be fixed. The EU ETS delivered the emission reductions that the European Union set out to achieve at the lowest possible cost, actually at minimal cost. What is not to like, right? You meet your targets, you don't impose any uh, economic pain, uh, but a lot of environmentalists dislike the low prices and said this needs to be fixed, uh, but that actually has not happened. Uh, the interventions that are there sort of exist on paper, but don't do uh, a whole lot. Um, recently, you will have noticed uh, that there was a bit of a scandal uh, around Volkswagen. Um, and what it did with its NOx emissions. Um, what Volkswagen really did was, Volkswagen was really confronted with a fundamental problem, and that is that it wanted to sell cars that are really carbon efficient, that don't emit a lot of CO2 per mile traveled, but it also had to reduce its NOx emissions and its particulate matter emissions. Um, you can't really do that. So they decided to sacrifice their uh, PM emissions, essentially their NOx emissions. Um, found out. Um, and now they have to change this. And that essentially means that a crucial plank of the European Union's attempt to reduce emissions was the switch from ga gasoline to diesel. That is now coming apart. Because either we have to abandon diesel engines altogether, or we have to make these diesel engines compliant with uh, NOx regulations, and that means that they won't be nearly as fuel efficient as they used to be. Right? Um, and that is taking apart uh, a, a big plank of Europe's uh, climate policy at the moment. The, the deal that they've agreed with, uh, I don't know how closely you follow the news, is that for the next three years it is fine uh, to put all this particular matter into the atmosphere and kill a few hundred uh, or perhaps a few thousand Europeans more. Um, that's the uh, agreement that has been reached. I'm going to take you through three uh, more countries uh, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about Paris. A um, number of you will have seen this graph. This is Modi's plans for uh, India's uh, climate policy essentially it's a bit like Boosie promised to do less than what you would expect the market to achieve. Um, so India is not particularly uh, serious about climate policy. Um, China uh, makes a lot more noise. I would argue that clean air and abundant water is what their environmental policy should focus on. But also uh, talk about climate policy uh, a lot. For a and they have been for a long time. And for a, a, a long while, China seems to be going back and forth between will we have a carbon tax or will we have tradable permits? But over the last year, uh, perhaps year and a half, it seems to be that they have settled on uh, tradable permits as the instrument of choice. Um, I think unwisely, and there's of course the theoretical uh, objections that you would have to uh, tradable permits over uh, taxation, uh, but it's also practical objectives. Uh, what you're looking at here are some numbers of energy use in China. And what you see is very substantial revisions uh, of the estimates uh, of energy use, uh, including coal, uh, one of the biggest emitters. Um, and here we see the same thing for uh, its emission numbers where 
not even the official st uh, statistics tally up uh, in China. And of course, there's no reason to believe uh, any of these numbers. Um, but the provinces and the federal government seem to disagree about how much China uh, actually uh, emits. Now, this is bad enough if we're talking about just emissions accounting, how much did China emit? That they can't seem to agree on a number, right? It's worse if you actually want to tax this, because if you don't know how much you are emitting, how are you going to tax something? But a tax is essentially a transaction between a company uh, and uh, its government, right? And somebody will take the blame uh, if, if, if the numbers are not quite right. But if you use shaky numbers like this as a basis for a property right in a market where different parties are selling this and then others have to take this at face value and may sell it on, if you can't monitor your emissions properly, how can you define a property right that can be traded for real money? It just doesn't seem to add up uh, for me. Um, Final country, and I hate uh, or I hesitate uh, to, to speak uh, about the US uh, in a room full of people who know much more about this country than I do. Um, I noticed that the US uh, climate policy, there's not been any primary legislation, and most of the uh, policy uh, has been done by executive order as well as some reinterpretation of legislation that was meant for completely different things. Uh, the problem with doing policy by executive order is, of course, that executive orders can be reversed at the stroke of the pen by the next uh, president. Uh, so a lot of US climate policy depends on uh, the outcome of the next elections, right? Um, this morning we talked a bit about the social cost of carbon. Um, what you're looking at here um, in, in the graph are essentially uh, the dots are the estimates of the social cost of carbon that were published in the particular years and that you see at the bottom. Uh, and then the lines are sort of the position of the literature until that point. Uh, and the thick black line is the median uh, of the literature. Um, and what the US did, or the federal government did, uh, between 2010 and 2013 is double the social cost of carbon. And if you look at the median of these studies, over time, and you compare 2010 to 2013, that doesn't seem to be a basis in the literature for doing this. <laughs> and yes, it is true that around that time there were a few excited studies that suggested that previous estimates of the social cost of carbon were too low, but the bulk of the evidence suggests no. And if you actually compare the studies that were published just before uh, to the published that came later, that concern seemed to have gone away. Um, and the social cost of carbon is, you don't need reminding, I would think, uh, is terribly important in federal policy because it essentially determines all the cost-benefit analyses that they're doing uh, and it essentially, through that, determines um, the uh, plate uh, efficiencies of all uh, your appliances um, in the future uh, of your cars and your trucks uh, as well as your power plants. Uh, so it is a terribly important number um, and it needs to be set very, very carefully and I'm not convinced 
uh, that the Interagency Working Group in 2013 did it as carefully uh, as perhaps they could have done. Um, so let's look, uh, look uh, a bit forward at, at Paris. And uh, of course, we know that since the collapse of the Copenhagen uh, agreements, uh, negotiations in 2009, countries have repeatedly said, and in 2015, we will reach a new deal. Now it is 2015, and in a few weeks' time, people will start gathering uh, in Paris uh, to come up uh, with that new deal. And uh, what will happen? And of course, you've also seen uh, the media uh, getting very, very excited uh, about this. Um, Fundamental point, greenhouse gas emission reduction is a public good, a global public good, in the sense that if you reduce your emissions, you will bear the cost. But the benefits of your emission reduction will be spread over the world. So you won't reap the full benefits, but only a small fraction of that. And that means that it's always in your best interest, in your self-interest, to let others take the lead, right? Um, and just based on first principles, you could say that any international treaty on greenhouse gas emission reduction will be very hard to uh, negotiate. There's two papers in the early 90s uh, that just uh, confirmed that. And that is exactly what we've seen, right? Since the negotiations uh, in Rio in 1992, not much progress has been made. But as an academic, right, this is good news. Economists made a prediction, and the prediction came true. Um, as a science communicator, I think we should feel bad, right? Because it's pretty obvious that our prediction uh, that this would fail was not taken to heart, and they tried anyway. And as a taxpayer, I think we should be dismayed uh, that so much resources uh, have been wasted on what has ultimately proved to be a futile uh, effort. Um, my calculations uh, are that on the international negotiations alone, uh, we spend about $100 million per year on just sending people to places like Paris. <laughs> For no apparent reason then to keep these people well-traveled. Um, <clears throat> Now, the economic fundamentals will tell you uh, that international negotiations on binding targets and timetables will fail, and we have seen that happen. That does not mean that we are incapable of providing public goods, global public goods. And if you look at other global public goods, how are they provided? And you can take an example of combating a pandemic or uh, sending a peacekeeping mission somewhere. Essentially, what, what happens there is that we identify the need and uh, then we go around with a begging ball, uh, and some people contribute money, other people uh, contribute troops or doctors or nurses, uh, and that is how we fund uh, and provide uh, for these things. And that is what we now see happening in the climate negotiations as well. Uh, the 2014 uh, COP in Lima introduced intended nationally determined contributions uh, to greenhouse gas emission reduction, and that is essentially Let's in review. Countries go back, decide what they want to do, announce it, and then we all get together in the major jamboree and say, is this enough? Do we want to do more? But the, the key part, the key deviation in Lima from the previous negotiations 
is that these are nationally determined. These targets are set by processes that are deemed legitimate within the countries that set these targets. It's not something that is imposed uh, from the United Nations uh, down. Um, and uh, today, the, is it the 30th uh, of October, a few weeks before the negotiation starts, indeed all major countries have announced uh, their targets. So there's, in that sense, there's nothing to negotiate of, over in Paris anymore. The targets have been set. Um, the discussion uh, last week in Bonn and the other pre preparatory meetings uh, are all about money. Essentially, how much do the rates give to the poor? That is what the negotiations are about at the moment. Um, it has been about that uh, since the very start. Uh, this is an old game, but the dynamics now have changed, right? And the, the main thing that is off the table is that we're no longer, Europeans are no longer paying the Africans uh, to beat up the Americans to go for higher targets because the targets have been announced, right? One of the main reasons why greener countries want to bribe poorer countries to convince browner countries what to do, that is off the table. Dynamics have also changed in other ways uh, that relative to the world economy, the poor uh, are now much richer. Uh, we've seen uh, China and India rise in all sorts of different ways since the start of the negotiations. Uh, and of course, the major donors uh, for this sort of bribes, that is Europe and Japan, uh, have suffered uh, austerity and will continue to suffer austerity uh, for at least another decade. Um, and that means that there's less need to talk about money, but there's also just simply less money uh, on the table. Um, I don't think a whole lot will happen uh, in uh, Paris. And I don't quite know what all those 50,000 people will do there. Um, all the major countries, as I said, have now uh, unilaterally announced uh, their emissions targets. Lo and behold, this came out uh, earlier today. Uh, this is from the United Nations Framework Convention uh, on Climate Change Secretariat, uh, where they're comparing the promised emission cuts uh, in yellow to uh, the baseline in black and to the blue, and that is what the IPCC said needs to be done to have a reasonable chance to stay below uh, two degrees uh, centigrade uh, global warming. And what you see is that two things have not happened, right? Uh, one, the plans that emissions should peak uh, in 2020. That's not what these <laughs> announced targets uh, will do, right? Compare the, the, the yellow block around 2020 to the one around 2030, you see that the promises are that emissions will continue to rise. Uh, and the other thing uh, is that we're getting further and further from the stated uh, two degrees uh, goal. Uh, and David Victor has said, I think rightfully, uh, that Paris will be the funeral of the two degrees target. I think that is a fair prediction. With 50,000 mourners, right? So a very expensive. Uh, funeral. Um, <clears throat> the two degrees target, uh, where does it come from? Um, as you probably know, uh, is the, the target is that the global annual mean surface air temperature should not rise by more than two degrees above pre-industrial times. Uh, this is a target that was formulated in 1995 by a small committee of middle-aged German men. 
adopted by the German government, uh, adopted by the European Union, and since endorsed uh, by other world leaders. Uh, and it has been the focal point of uh, the United Nations uh, negotiations. Uh, environmentalists haven't gotten their way have now switched to a more ambitious target so as to balance uh, people who are less enamored by the two degrees target. Um, yeah, the, the crucial bit here is that I think this committee was not necessarily representative, but also this, they did this in 1994, published in 1995. They did not know a whole lot about the impacts of climate change or the impacts of climate policy back then. Knowledge has moved on quite a bit, but the target has stayed the same, and that doesn't seem to rhyme. Um, people have long pointed out that the two degrees target is actually very hard to meet. And just to illustrate that, here's a graph from uh, the fifth assessment report of uh, Working Group 3 of the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, so uh, if you move from left to right, you move into the future, 2030, 2050, 2100. Um, at the top, we're looking at the industrial gases, then uh, laughing gas, then methane. And at the bottom, you're looking at CO2. And then within those blocks, uh, the top bars are if you aim for um, not very ambitious climate targets, more than 1,000 ppm. It's actually quite hard to do that by 2100. Um, and then uh, at the very bottom, the bar uh, is for around 440 ppm, so that's consistent roughly uh, with a two degrees target. And the crucial thing that you see there, that in order to get to two degrees, all models agree there is a consensus that you need to go to negative emissions. <laughs> that is, in energy that is imaginable, right, what you need to do is switch your transport sector, switch your electricity sector to bioenergy, and then use carbon capture and storage. And then, of course, you have negative emissions because the trees that grow and that are then burned soak up CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, something that I spotted only recently, these models also say that you need negative emissions for methane and for laughing gas and for the industrial gases. I don't know how, to, how, how you can do that, uh, but the models say you must find the technology that I cannot imagine at the moment um, to meet this target. So meeting this target will be very, very difficult. Uh, I don't think we're going to try, uh, but I also don't think it's actually feasible. Um, so we will not meet uh, the generally agreed target if we take the IPCC's estimates of the climate sensitivity for granted. Of course, if you believe Dick Linsen that the climate sensitivity is much lower, then we will probably meet uh, this target, right? Uh, but not for uh, the IPCC estimates. Uh, so, um, few minutes, if we're going to miss this target that everybody says we should meet, uh, how bad is that? Um, so what you're looking at here, and it's the blue dots, are all the published estimates of the total economic impact of cl climate change. Uh, the way to read this graph is as follows. On the horizontal axis, you're looking at scenarios of climate change here indexed on the global mean surface air temperature. That is not because I think that is the only thing that matters for climate change, but this is just an index, right? So that is on the horizontal axis. And then on the vertical axis, you're looking at the welfare equivalent income change. And the way to read this graph, if you focus on two and a half degrees of uh, global warming, 
is that two and a half degrees of warming would make the average citizen of this planet feel as if she had lost 1.3% of her income. That is how to read this graph. 1.3% of your income is, of course, something that you would not want to lose. Uh, but if we think that two and a half degrees of warming will take 60, 70 years, and we consider that annual economic growth is two or three percent, then essentially a century of climate change is as bad as losing a year of economic growth. That is what these estimates say. This is not what you would read in the newspaper, um, but this is what uh, the estimates uh, say. So a few more things that you would see in this graph. Um, a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, it's true. That sort of, if you look at moderate warming, we see minor welfare effects, but if you go to more pronounced warming, we would see a steep acceleration of those impacts. That is not what these estimates suggest, right? Uh, we see a much more linear progression. Um, and you also see that the initial warming is probably beneficial. Again, something that you would not read uh, in many newspapers. Um, why would initial warming be beneficial? First reason is CO2. CO2 makes plants grow. Uh, that is a, a, a big boon, particularly if you are dependent on agriculture in arid or in semi-arid areas. Um, if it gets warmer, we don't need to heat our houses so much in winter, uh, so that is another benefit. Uh, and the third benefit is that fewer people would succumb to cold-related diseases, another benefit. Um, so we would see initial benefits uh, in the beginning, they dominate the negative impacts of climate change, uh, but if we go to more pronounced climate change, uh, the negative impacts uh, start to dominate, but they never become uh, particularly big. Um, what does this mean for the social cost of carbon? These, this graph is all relative to pre-industrial times, and we've seen, say, 0.8 degrees of warming uh, already, so we're actually fairly close to the turning point where the incremental impacts become negative, uh, which would suggest that this is actually not a reason uh, to start subsidizing coal, uh, but it's still a reason to tax coal, or, uh, albeit very modestly. Um, what we look at, but, but everything depends on what you assume about how fast will the world warm. It depends on your emission scenario, but it also depends on your climate sensitivity. I have to correct Judy Curry um, about this morning. What we do in these climate models is not stick in the climate sensitivity and assume that the world will jump to the equilibrium within one year. That's not what we do. The equilibrium climate sensitivity is a parameter in this model, but we do include at least the rudimentary dynamics of how the world's climate would respond to emissions. Um, in blue, you're looking at the dot. Uh, in the blue dot uh, represents the number that we submitted to the interagency uh, working group, as this is what the social cost of carbon should be. And indeed, they assumed a, a climate sensitivity of three degrees of warming uh, for doubling uh, of atmospheric carbon dioxide. Uh, then in green, if the climate sensitivity is higher, uh, you would see that you would recommend a greater uh, carbon tax. The social cost of carbon uh, would go up. But if you go to lower estimates of the equilibrium sensitivity, then you see two things. One, as you would expect, that the social cost of carbon falls, and quite rapidly. But because we have these initial benefits, and because the benefits of CO2 fertilization are largely independent of climate, you actually see that if you say, well, climate sensitivity is only two degrees per doubling of CO2, 
then our model says this is not a social cost of carbon, this is a social benefit of carbon. And if you go to the Dick Linson School uh, of Climate Sensitivities 1, then we're actually talking about, yeah, the interagency working group got the number right, but it should have put a minus sign in front of it, right? Um, that's the total economic impact evaluated along uh, uh, for the world average. Uh, here you're looking at the same picture for two and a half degrees of warming, uh, but now for all countries uh, in the world, and countries are ranked from the poorest uh, on, your, on the left-hand side of the graph to the richest on the right-hand side of the graph. And what you see is that just looking at the global mean is perhaps not particularly informative, uh, and there's great variation in how vulnerable countries are. And what you also see is that poorer countries are actually much more vulnerable to climate change uh, than richer countries. That is for three reasons. One, uh, they are in hotter places already, so additional warming is just more easily uh, imaginably uh, bad. Uh, second, uh, that's a perhaps a more important reason, poorer countries have a greater exposure uh, to climate change, they have a larger share of their economic activity in agriculture and are therefore directly exposed uh, to uh, climate and weather. Whereas if you look at a country like the UK, uh, where I reside nowadays, uh, most of our economy is in banking, and that means that we're not particularly vulnerable to the weather, right? Vulnerable to other things, but not uh, to climate change and weather variability. The third reason why poorer countries are more vulnerable to climate change is that what we call uh, they have uh, low adaptive capacity. And for a lot of adaptation to climate change, you think about large-scale irrigation, you think about dike building to protect, against the cell, uh, protect yourself against sea level, that is a public intervention. And if you have a state that doesn't care, or you have a state that is incompetent, and that is, of course, a characteristics of many, many developing countries, um, then you simply can't do these sort of things. Uh, so that is the reason why we think that this is not a correlation, but is actually a causal uh, relationship. The immediate implication is not what a lot of environmentalists seem to think, that if poorer countries are more vulnerable to climate change, we should care more about climate change. I don't think that is the interpretation, the correct interpretation of this graph at all. Um, Really what we see here is that development, as well as emission reduction, reduce the impacts of climate change. And if we do emission reduction at the expense of economic growth in poorer countries, we actually may make the impacts of climate change worse rather than better. Now this is not a hypothetical. A lot of development organizations, including USAID, including the World Bank, have stopped financing cheap electricity in Africa and said, no, 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 Africans, you must use expensive electricity because think of the climate. But that, of course, slows down economic growth. Cheap and abundant and reliable energy is a major component to being able to develop economically. Not in a country that is as rich as the US, but definitely in a country uh, that is as poor as uh, the Congo, for instance. Um, and I think that World Bank USAID policy is actually a big mistake. Uh, so to wrap up, um, 25 years of climate policy has made most of us a little bit poorer. Some people actually got a good bit richer out of this. 
Uh, it has not reduced emissions uh, by a whole lot, and it has failed to entrench itself in the way that pensions uh, or primary education have entrenched itself. Um, I think it's good that international climate policy is shifting away from its 20-year focus on binding targets to a more realistic pledging review system. Uh, the two degrees target will be missed, but I don't think uh, that will lead to a large uh, welfare loss. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Questions? Also assuming that we are on RCP 8.5. That's the emissions scenario in which there's exponential growth in the current mix of sources of energy that we use. Well, what's happening is we're not going to do 8.5 because the world's discovered that it's full of natural gas in shale. You can see this in the United States, and that is not going to be kept from propagating worldwide. It's going to do it eventually. So let's say we're on their next lowest emission scenario. That is RCP6. They have uh, a total warming, uh, a remaining warming in the 20th century of 2.2 degrees in RCP6. But if you take the last four years of papers on sensitivity and take the average sensitivity in papers published since 2011, the sensitivity becomes 1.6. Uh, you do all the multiplication out, and guess what? you get two degrees of warming. So why don't they just lower the sensitivity to the current estimates, declare victory, and then we won't even have to go to Paris? <laughs> there's, there's no arguing with the calculus there, right? Um, if indeed the climate sensitivity is substantially lower than is typically assumed, uh, and indeed baseline emissions are substantially lower, and then a lot of people seem to think they will be, then this is not such a big bigger problem. And of course there's reasons to assume that uh, emissions will be lower in the future. Um, I think about eight weeks ago now uh, there was this paper I believe in Nature uh, about methane emissions. So uh, a big source of methane emissions is paddy rice and that is essentially because you grow rice on the water and then there's a lot of uh, or organic material that leads to rot in oxygen poor conditions and that means you have a lot of CH4 coming out. But also a lot of these rice varieties don't yield a whole lot. So they, what they did was they stuck a gene taken from barley into the rice so that the plant goes higher, it makes bigger grains and that has to come from somewhere so it makes less leaves and that means that you get a much higher yield uh, from your rice, but you also have a, a lot fewer leaves from your rice left to rot in the water. Uh, so yields double, but methane emissions fall by a factor 100. Um, so, I mean, yes, there will be surprises. And I mean, two years ago, when I was lecturing about future emission scenarios, I said, we don't know what to do about paddy rice. We can't stop people from eating to save the climate. 
But now all of a sudden you can. And there will be those surprises in the future as well that will drive emissions lower. At the same time, uh, there will also be surprises that drive emissions higher, right? The, Japanese, the Chinese uh, are very keen on their coal because of geopolitical reasons. So they are talking, they are looking into coal liquefaction to drive uh, their vehicles and their tanks. Uh, and they're also looking at underground coal, coal gasification, right? Which is good for sulfur emissions. It's very bad for CO2 emissions. Uh, so yeah, I mean, surprises can go both ways, right? I, I don't know what the rules are, but take the floor and start talking, that's it. <laughs> yeah, she was first. <laughs> yeah, my name's Li Yang. Uh, would you explain more, let's say your statements, missing the target will not lead to a large welfare loss? I'm thinking just for instance, by two aspects. One is pollution, and if the pollution in the cause a medical or healthcare cost, that's a tremendous difference. Second is, uh, they say, uh, renewable energy, and uh, potentially that's renewable should be a lot cheaper than the uh, drilling or the coal industry cost, and uh, that's including the labor cost, not just the capital. So would you explain that more? No, I, I, I would accept the proposition that fossil fuels generate a lot of externalities, and definitely if we're talking about particulates and those sort of things, uh, we're talking about very substantial welfare losses. Um, I don't think you can maintain that if we're talking about CO2. Uh, and there's, I have not seen much evidence in the literature to suggest that, that climate change will lead to large welfare losses. We have one more question from over here. Your name? Many people think that Climategate had a real impact in Copenhagen. Do you believe that something like this might come along for Paris? I have in mind the Verdier case in France. In the United States, we have the investigation of the uh, NOAA by the chairman of the science committee. And we also have the Shukla scandal and uh, the RICO scandal. Do you think that this will make an impact? Uh, and to those scandals, you can add uh, the John Cook uh, fraud, right? <laughs> um, No, I don't think that will have a major impact. Uh, I don't think that Climategate had an impact on Copenhagen. The way these international negotiations work, and Harlan can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that most countries go to the negotiation table with prepared positions, and having a scandal break a few weeks before that will not change the prepared positions. Uh, and I think that Copenhagen collapsed for completely different reasons, namely that you cannot negotiate these things. Uh, ditto for the Paris negotiations. All countries have decided what they're going to say, what their negotiation space is already. So anything that will break in the news over the next few weeks will be sort of noise in the background, but will not change uh, the way countries negotiate. I also have a more te technical question for you related to the social cost of carbon. Mm -hmm. uh, a part of that uh, 
uh, calculation has to do with the impact assessment model. Your model uh, shows, I believe, a positive impact for modest temperatures. Uh, Bill Nordhaus shows a negative impact. Can you explain the difference between the two models and why they differ? Um, Bill Nordhaus is a great colleague. Um, let me start uh, with that. Um, and uh, he, he, uh, he has always been good to me. The reason why I think that the DICE model does not have positive impacts in the beginning has to do with arcane uh, conditions on the convexity that he needs to impose on his model in order to make sure that the growth model indeed is in equilibrium. And if you don't impose these convexity uh, conditions, you cannot guarantee an equilibrium. Uh, so I think this is an arcane technical reason. And if you press Bill Hart in private, he will not disagree with you that modest warming would have benefits, but I, I think it's an artifact of the model. That's very good to know. Uh, you can do with sulfate, you can do with, with arcane mathematics, but we can do with sulfates as climatologists. We, we need to go to our next session, which begins right now. So. Thank you.